Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. Today, we learned that more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in the last year. That is the highest overdose death toll ever recorded in a 12-month period. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said 100,300 Americans died of overdoses between May of 2020 and April of 2021. That is a 28% increase on the previous year. Most of the deaths came from overdoses of the synthetic drug fentanyl, an epidemic of addiction made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. Lockdowns left drug users socially isolated, unable to get treatment. Drug overdoses now claim more lives than car accidents and gun violence in America combined. Fentanyl is now the number one cause of death in 18 to 45 year olds in the U.S. This synthetic opioid is often described as 50 times stronger than heroin and 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Because it is so potent, and also cheap to manufacture, drug dealers are adding fentanyl to other illicit drugs, leading many to ingest it unintentionally. Just two milligrams of fentanyl, about the size of a sea salt flake, can be lethal. So what can be done? Today's guest knows this problem far too intimately. Dr. Beth Weinstock lost her son last year after he ingested an unknown substance that contained both Kratom, a legal herbal supplement, and fentanyl. He was 20 years old, now a statistic in the greatest public health crisis of his generation. In the wake of grief and disbelief, Dr. Weinstock and her daughter Olivia set out to help prevent more young people from dying due to accidental fentanyl ingestion. They founded an organization, Birdie Light, to create awareness and provide life-saving tools for young people. Dr. Weinstock, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with the magnitude of this problem. Well, the scope of the fentanyl problem is nearly impossible to comprehend. Uh, Just last year in America, in a 12-month period spanning April 2020 to April 2021, over 100,000 people died due to what's labeled a drug overdose. And nearly 70,000 of those deaths were attributed to opioids. But what's really 
fueling the number is the alarming increase in fentanyl-related deaths, which is to say that, as in my son Eli's death, these are mostly unintentional fentanyl ingestions rather than an overdose. So when I speak to parents and students and high school age kids, I make several striking comparisons just to get a handle on how large this epidemic is. And one of the comparisons I make is to American wars. For example, uh, the Vietnam War, you know, wars mostly kill young people, just like the fentanyl epidemic. And in the Vietnam War, on the Vietnam War Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., there are about 58,000 names. And that's for a war that lasted nearly 10 years. Compare that, you know, to the 100,000 I just mentioned in a 12-month period in 2021. Another comparison in World War II, 220 soldiers approximately were dying per day in World War II. And right now, due to opioids in our country, 200 people are dying a day, and it's increasing. Wow. And you said with both cases, they're young people. What else can you tell us about who's behind the statistics? Well, the fastest rising demographic is in age 15 to 24. And, you know, right now, of course, this is the leading cause of death in 18 to 45-year-olds, eclipsing even car accidents. So it's rising in young people. It's also rising in communities of color. But across the board, we're seeing a 30% increase in opioid-related deaths um, compared to 2019 and early 2020. Wow. Are you seeing more males than females being affected by this? It is um, more male-heavy, particularly in the the younger 15 to 24 demographic, where you tend to see more risk-taking behavior in males. And what about geography? There's no place that's untouched by this. You know, it's across the board. You're seeing fentanyl um, spread across the country, although it's it's heavier in the places ravaged by the initial opioid epidemic mm-hmm. waves, such as the Midwest, um, California, and some some states in New England. Many Americans associate fentanyl with addiction and opioids with addiction. Tell us how it's so different from just addiction. Well, when we first started hearing about fentanyl, which was approximately ten years ago. It was because heroin was increasingly found to contain fentanyl, and people who were struggling with heroin addiction were dying due to fentanyl ingestion, oftentimes when they were unaware that the heroin contained fentanyl. And so we heard about it initially then, and I think the problem with that is Americans still associate fentanyl with heroin addiction. But what's happened, I mean, here's the thing, fentanyl is everywhere now. If a college student decides to try a line of cocaine at a party, there's a strong chance it has fentanyl in it. Or if a friend hands a young student a Xanax because that person is feeling anxious. And let me be clear, one real Xanax has never killed anyone. But if you are actually taking a counterfeit Xanax, then there's a strong chance it has fentanyl in it. Fentanyl adulterates nearly every recreational drug in our country now, and this is what's killing our young people. And it's entirely possible and increasingly likely that if you're a recreational or first-time drug user, you're going to encounter fentanyl in that substance. What characteristics of fentanyl have made it become so pervasive? Well, the thing about fentanyl is that it's a synthetic opioid, meaning it's made from chemical um, ingredients in a lab. 
So fentanyl is not reliant on an agricultural system. You don't have to get it from a field in, you know, Central or South America. So essentially anyone who can get the ingredients can make fentanyl. And that's why it's becoming so pervasive. It's very cheap to make. And it also is very lucrative if you are selling pills, for example, that contain fentanyl and people come back to you for more. The chemical itself creates a, a very intense euphoria. It's um, highly addictive. And if you survive you know, your first few ingestions, then you tend to have a repeat customer. Hmm. So it's both a supply and demand issue. It is. And I think the supply issue is so complicated. A lot of the ingredients originally had come out of China. I think they still are. A lot of the fake pills are made south of the United States and brought across the border. But these are complicated issues. And there are a lot of people who have a variety of opinions on on this and a lot of um, movement to try to change this. But what I'm primarily focusing on is not changing things at the southern border of the United States, but more to talk to young people and educate them about the risk because I can't do anything about what's happening in China or, you know, the drug distribution channels. Yeah. I've heard you intentionally use the word murder when describing what happened to Eli. Can you explain why you choose that word? Yeah. A lot of harm reduction activists, as well as myself, who is relatively new to this, um, take issue with the word overdose. I think by definition, an overdose means that you're used to dosing things a certain way. And then the next time you do it, you take too much of it. And what's killing so many young people now is not overdosing. They're not used to taking fentanyl and then one time take extra. Um, my friend uses the sort of funny analogy that, it, for example, if you order chicken in a restaurant and it ends up having salmonella in it, you didn't overdose on chicken. You actually were poisoned. You weren't aware yeah. of what was in the chicken. Yeah. And um, we would never say, oh, you overate your chicken or, you know, I mean, yeah. we're just not really using the right words. And I think until we get the right language, we can't get rid of stigma. So for example, my son, Eli, was not struggling with addiction. He tried something that he thought was something else and it was poisoned with fentanyl. And this happens to so many kids, uh, young people these days. It's... um. It's staggering how many times someone thinks they're trying one thing and it's poisoned with fentanyl. Yeah. I think that's something that's true across healthcare. And a lot of my guests talk about how words matter and it oftentimes comes down to stigma. Yeah. And one of the things I originally had thought is, you know, especially here in Ohio, for example, uh, fentanyl test strips, you could only get at uh, like a drug paraphernalia store, you know, where people go mm. to buy pipes or rolling papers. Sure. And so you can get fentanyl test strips there for free from the Columbus Health Department. But to me, that's keeping harm reduction in sort of a dark space. Yeah. You know, you only get it if you seek it out and go to a place that you wouldn't usually frequent. But mm -hmm. what my organization is trying to do is to change the conversation, to change the culture around what we think of as harm reduction. We did it for condoms in the 1980s and 90s when all of a sudden people were dying from the complications of HIV. We started talking to everyone about condoms, even middle schoolers. 
And right now, just as many people or more are dying, and we are not talking to our middle and high schoolers about fentanyl. Does DARE still exist? How are they learning about drugs and alcohol? DARE still exists, and they do still speak to high school students uh, in middle school. I don't understand their curriculum entirely. I haven't studied it, but I I do know their main message is just say no to drugs. Yeah. And um, in my opinion, that message has failed. If you look at the numbers and if you look at the number of people who experiment with drugs on a regular basis, we need to change our message and we need to change the way we're teaching kids about staying safe from drugs. Well, tell us about the harm reduction approach that you advocate for and work on at Birdie Light. Our primary mission with Birdie Light is to get in front of high school kids, college kids, parents, and educators, and to teach them about the fentanyl epidemic, teach them where it's found, how to test for it, and how to stay safe. Um, and, And it's very simple what we teach, but what happens when we speak to especially young people is that there, there starts to be a cultural shift, a better understanding of what it means to experiment. So for example, if I speak to a group of young people, generally one or two of them will raise their hand and say, hey, I know a friend of mine who experiments once or twice a month with cocaine how do I get strips for him so that he's safe? And afterwards, a lot of times the young people will say, thank you for teaching us about this in a non-judgmental way. Thank you for telling us how to stay safe because everyone around us is experimenting with something. I mean, kids have experimented with things from time eternal, and I don't think we're ever going to change it. It's just that the stakes are so much higher now. Yeah. It does remind me of sex ed and how abstinence-only curriculum is completely counterproductive and actually has increased rates of teen pregnancy versus teaching comprehensive sex education. There's something about teens where, I don't, I'm not an expert, but I, I was a teen and you were a teen and it made me even more curious about that thing. Absolutely. And of course, now with COVID and some mental health um, uh, staggering statistics for young adults, what I think could happen is that we're going to see kids more likely to reach for a pill their friend gives them or to order a pill on Snapchat, or I'm going out for the night. I haven't been out in forever. I'm just going to do some Coke and and just go crazy. And the stakes are so much higher now. I mean, I think the numbers in Ohio, and I don't quote me on this, I guess, I, I don't study the numbers that clearly when it comes to the drug supply, but I think right now cocaine in Ohio is about 15% adulterated with fentanyl. And it, it varies geographically. But um, that's a, that's a high, high likelihood that you could be harmed by it or, or die from fentanyl ingestion just by doing a line of cocaine. Sure. And I imagine uh, you know, teens are smaller and those sort of dosings are going to be more potent for a smaller person. Definitely, but also they're not accustomed to opioids. If you if you take opioids on a daily basis and you and you take some fentanyl, it you, you probably would be safe. But you know, if you're not accustomed to opioids and have no tolerance, it's more likely to kill you. Oh, interesting. So your body builds tolerance to opioids yes. as you use them. Okay, I didn't know yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And how how do fentanyl test strips actually work? So they work along the model of a like a home pregnancy test or even a home COVID test where you just get, you get a line, well, you get two lines if there's 
no fentanyl in one line if there is, but they you dip the uh, test strip into a small container of water that contains whatever substance you're about to take. So for example, if someone handed you an oxycodone and you weren't sure that was a real oxycodone, well, you should you should test everything. It doesn't matter if you're sure, but you would put the pill into the small container of water, for example, like the top of a two liter soda bottle. And you put the water in that and then you put the strip in and let it sit for 30 seconds. And then you lay the strip on, on the table and it lights up positive or negative. And then within that uh, container of liquid that has your pill dissolved in it, if you do decide to move forward with ingestion of that pill, you would just drink it. You wouldn't have to, you know, you can dissolve a pill and drink it. But we have a three-prong approach and we talk about these test strips and we teach very specifically how to use them. But it's so imperative for, for young people to understand that no tool is 100% and these strips are not 100%. What I've read uh, with some research, and there's very limited research, is that we're talking anywhere from 92 to 96% sensitive. So we always tell young people, if you're going to move forward with ingestion of anything, always tell a friend who's not using the same substance and always have that friend very aware of where the Narcan is. And Narcan is an opioid reversal agent that can save lives if there's um, an accidental fentanyl ingestion. Are you guys providing access to Narcan as well? We do. We we pass out mostly strips and we often will pair up with another organization that's handing out the Narcan, but we also do that. Uh, we work with Harm Reduction Ohio and other groups to supply us with Narcan. Yeah. So are the test strips, are they quantitative? Can you see, is it like the, because it's it's only one line if it does contain fentanyl. So how does that work in terms of, can it tell you or give you an idea for how much fentanyl is in something? No. And that's okay. one it's argument. Binary. Yeah. People say, well, it can't tell you how much. In my opinion, if it has any fentanyl in it, you shouldn't take it. Um, and so that seems like a no brainer to me. There's some um, fine points in regard to false positives, perhaps with um, ecstasy or MDMA. And um, there's specific instructions on that, that that has to be diluted a little more in order to avoid the false positives. But I'm willing to risk some false positives uh, in yeah. the sense of life-saving would, tools. Yeah. <laughs> false positives in this case are much better than the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. And so teens, young adults are out there using these strips now and hopefully making better decisions. Well, not enough of them are. Most of the time when I speak to young young adults, I, they haven't heard of them or they don't know how to use them. So that's why Birdie Light exists. We we want to change the the idea that, and for example, I wish like in every dorm and every fraternity, every sorority in the country, there was just like a first aid kit or a, you know a basket of these on every floor. Or when you moved into your dorm, you got a packet of fentanyl test strips. Everybody carries them. That's exactly what we did with condoms, and and it worked. Yeah. The conversation worked. But what do you say to parents who don't even want condoms there, who feel like these sort of harm reduction practices only encourage poor decision-making? Well, the numbers don't lie. Mm. And when we think about the number of young people, including my son, who have died from this crisis, I try to stress, we can bury our head in the sand and say, I don't want to encourage drug use, but the drug use is already happening. 
you know, we don't we don't really just have an opioid crisis in our country, which we've known about for for two decades now. We have a poisoning crisis. And I like to tell parents that your kid is probably either number one, not going to become addicted to something they take, but it only takes one time for them to ingest fentanyl one time, just like Eli. The other thing I tell people is that your kid may never try anything. You know, I have four children. One of them has never tried anything. The other two are are quite young, but Eli tried something. So maybe your kid's going to be the one that doesn't ever try anything, but maybe your kid could save someone's life. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And especially for distribution of tests to make people feel more comfortable taking the test positioning it as, you know, you might not need this for yourself, but get it for a friend. And there's less, um, you're not disclosing that you're going to be experimenting with drugs, but you could be just taking it to be a good friend. Exactly. And I know in my own experience, even in college, you know, sometimes you're at a, a party or you go around the corner into a different room at the party and there's some people trying cocaine, for example. And you might be the person who just says, hey, why don't you guys test this? I have some strips. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So tell us about the name you chose for your organization, Birdie Light. Is there a meaning behind it? Yeah, it's very touching, actually. So my daughter and I, Olivia, co-founded Birdie Light. She's 22, and and she's sort of the strength behind me uh, being able to do this. She's a, a real go-getter. And, and I said, you know, let's do something about this problem. It was about five months after Eli died. And we started talking about Eli, just his personality and all of his friends who loved him so much. And when they were in high school, I'm sorry, middle school, they had a name for their group called the Birdies. 
And we just love that. And, and a lot of people brought it up as his, at his funeral. So, and then we started talking about the idea of a bird, a canary that goes into a coal mine with a light, you know, uh, to, um, to see what the air holds, you know, the, the canary is the, um, test strip essentially. So we thought we would combine the light, the birdie, and, uh, I'm not kidding about this. When we wrote it down and we were playing around with how to say it exactly, we wrote it down and I just gasped and I said, Oh my mm. God, Eli's name is right in the middle. Mm. We hadn't even planned it. Oh, that's sweet. I just thought yeah. I, this has to be. And, uh, we got some advice early on. You should change your name because it doesn't say exactly what you're doing. And I said, there's no way we're changing <laughs> this name. Yeah. <laughs> this name is sticking. Yeah. Um, but you know, we center Eli in everything we do, uh, his memory and his honor. And, and it just seems fitting that his name is right in the middle of, of birdie light. Has working on this problem with your daughter helped with the grieving process? It has. I think she and I are both doers and she and I both uh, get very restless with our grief. Um, we want to take action. We want to feel hopeful. And um, also we laugh about the idea that Eli would be so mad if we weren't doing something about this. Mm. He had a very- He held you guys up. Yeah, he had a very strong sense of of justice. He was a very black and white thinker, um, very righteous, which in a good way. And so, um, so he keeps us going. And have you guys been hearing from some of, I don't know if you call them clients or beneficiaries of the organization, what are you hearing? What sort of feedback are you getting? Well, a, a couple levels to that. One is the, the immediate when we're speaking to young adults and how thankful they are and how they want to volunteer for us or spread the word because they're the people, you know, not to go back to the war metaphor, but they're the soldiers, they're in the trenches, you know, and they can see what's happening on the ground. Uh, so the, the instant gratification from hearing students say this is making a difference. Parents are usually the people who know the least. And so when I talk to them, they're very thankful because they had no idea. And I'm a doctor, and I'll tell you, I had no idea before Eli yes. died. I was going to ask that if if that was something that you've, if this was a space that you knew something about before. I did, but I didn't know the scope of it. I remember talking to Eli uh, maybe two months before he died about uh, some anecdotal stories I'd heard about cocaine containing fentanyl, and I was talking, I was warning him about it. Now he didn't die from doing cocaine, but I remember having the conversation and thinking. I just heard a few stories about it, but I didn't know the scope of the problem. Um, so th then the third part of, of the gratification is that we have gotten some anecdotal reports from students who get back to us somewhat anonymously and say, I used your strips, my drugs were positive, so I threw them away. So we do think that we've saved some lives, although anytime you, you are dealing with something that's illegal, um, you know, stigma, people generally don't get back to us and say, you know, I was, I was about to take these pills and I didn't because of all of the, um, unfortunately the shame and stigma that surrounds, uh, drug use. Yeah. Maybe, maybe fear of getting arrested, having that documented somewhere. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In addition to the work that you're doing, is there any policy changes that you would like to see at the state or federal level? Well, first and foremost, the fentanyl test strips are um, criminalized in multiple states, really, including Ohio. 
they're classified in, in, in many laws as drug paraphernalia, Wow, which um, of course is not true, but yeah. um, that's how the it's written. Yeah. yeah. So we have some legislation here intro- being introduced in Ohio, I think even in the next week or two that would take that, that um, wording off the books. It's rarely prosecuted. Um, and, and there are people who pass out fentanyl test strips in many states and, I don't know the law in, in all 50 states, but a lot of them are, are being repealed because um, you, even from a bipartisan perspective, people are seeing the value of, of testing for fentanyl. So in Ohio and others, hopefully this will change. And that's one thing that I would like to see happen just universally. Um, I'd like to see drug testing be normalized, as I mentioned before, so that, um, you know, even in high schools, people talk about it freely. There's still a lot of fear. And I think that needs to change, although that's not necessarily a legislative issue. But I think once lawmakers start speaking about it openly, then a lot of times higher higher education and high school curriculum will follow. And um, on the federal level, there's been some movement already with um, you know the Biden administration talking more about harm reduction and putting more funding toward harm reduction. But I would like to see a somewhat universal curriculum from the Department of Education that hands uh, across the country that says this fentanyl education needs to be in the hands of every middle school health teacher and every high school health teacher in the country. Um, But that's not happening yet. Yeah. Until that happens, are there organizations that are taking more grassroots approach to that educational component other than you guys, obviously, but at more of a national level? Well, there aren't many people doing what we're doing. There are a few organizations, but trying to rewrite a curriculum and get it into a high school or middle school, I'm learning, is extraordinarily difficult. Um, There's a lot of resistance to change. So right now what we're doing is is a piecemeal fashion, although we're having a good effect. It's just more slow than a universal curriculum. We are trying to get into high schools across the country to speak to um, both educators and students and spread our message. But again, you know, we're one organization. We can't duplicate ourselves that rapidly. So one of our goals is to create our own Birdie Light curriculum and, and to distribute a video and materials so that every school can have a standardized way to talk about fentanyl. And what about parents? Could they access materials to have those conversations at home if they're not happening at the school? Absolutely. And I do speak to a lot of PTAs, parent groups, um, college alum, alumni organizations, um, local salons. I'm traveling to D.C. to do something like that in the next uh, month. So we are we're piecing it together. But I think one of our broader goals, and keep in mind we're only five months old, is um, to to standardize what we do and create an ambassador system similar to, for example, one of my um, hero organizations is Sandy Hook Promise. And what they did is they train people, ambassadors in every high school to speak about gun violence and, um, and ways to reduce it. So our goal is to have the same model where we get an ambassador on a college campus and they can just duplicate what we're teaching them. Yeah, that's great. So are you optimistic that the fentanyl poisoning crisis can be corrected? Optimistic, yes. It's a good question. You know, in light of Eli's death and and 
this giant hole that was blown open in my family, the only thing I sometimes cling to is, is hope, the hopeful vision for the future. And every time I speak to a parent or a student or an educator or a patient about the dangers of fentanyl, I feel hopeful. And that's a very powerful balm for grief to, to feel that hope. Um, I feel it in Eli's honor. And I feel like what we need to do in this country is create a community of care around this drug use crisis. And, and, um, and that would include parents, young adults, advocators, educators, and people who are willing to see the epidemic for what it really is. It's a, it's the most devastating health crisis this generation has seen. And we need to have open conversations about it. And so every time I see the needle shift a little bit towards more acknowledgement of fentanyl or more um, just um, honesty around what kids experiment with, I feel hopeful around that. How can people support your work at Birdie Light? Well, the main thing is go to our website and learn about fentanyl and then turn around and talk to someone else about it, particularly people who are in your life that you care about that either have kids who are a kid, is a kid, or um, a young adult, your nieces, your nephews. Having those conversations is, is the main way you can support us. Secondly, have us come speak to your organization, your high school, your parent group, your college campus, your fraternity, your sorority. Invite us there and we'll come. Um, thirdly, of course, um, from a, a fiscal standpoint, donate every dollar you give us purchases fentanyl test strips and pays for us to travel to speak to more people. Um, and so we are a simple model. We're a lot of talking and we're fentanyl test strips. And that's that's essentially what we have, but it's very powerful. Yeah. How many fentanyl test strips can a $20 donation provide? Each test strip we purchase is 72 cents. So I'd oh, have to great. get a calculator to do that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but so a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening, you can go to their website, donate. Their website is birdie light, B-I-R-D-I-E-L-I-G-H-T dot org. Dr. Weinstock, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for what you're doing. And we're all here with you, supporting you and really admiring this important work that you're doing on behalf of Eli. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is Hallie Tecco with the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you were moved by today's discussion, please subscribe and leave us a review. Have an idea for a future episode? Share it with us at heartofhealthcarepodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.